0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Why is this coming up now instead of 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago?
0: It's just because that's how cultures change. And from my field, is that uh, meanings are in people, not in words.
1: It's not the parents' business what's being taught in the schools. Do you believe that? Welcome back to Fill in the Blanks, everybody. I have a very, very interesting episode today with a very interesting guest that I've been anxious to get on. And I'm going to tell you why. First, the guest is Dr. Susie Denbo, and she was on an episode recently that I did about pronouns. And this was a very talked about episode on Dr. Phil. There was a lot of engagement about this, a lot of people talking about it, a lot of activity after the show. It hasn't been very long since it was on, and I wanted to talk to the good doctor about all of that because I felt like she had so much more to say. We were so crowded in the show, and I just had to give her an opportunity to say a lot of things that she didn't get to say, not because of her. She is a communications expert but because of me and my timing and all the things that were jammed into the show. So I wanted to give her an opportunity, and she was kind enough to be generous with her time and come on here again, and you're going to see her on Dr. Phil again, I hope, if she is generous with her time some more. But she is an associate professor in the School of Communication Studies at Kent State University. She's a graduate of Purdue, and let's just say this is one smart cookie and has a lot to say about a lot of different things. She specializes, as I say, in communications, feminism, and gender as well. There's just a lot going on. She's got over 20 publications, and we can talk about those later as well. But welcome to Dr. Susie Denbo. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm glad. You're snowed in up there, so we've kind of shuffled our schedules around, and I appreciate you being flexible to do that. We're doing this on a Saturday, but as I said, I wanted to get this on as close to the episode as possible because people are really buzzing about everything that we talked about. You know, pronouns, let's talk about this a little bit. When we're talking about pronouns, in case somebody has been off the planet for the last couple of years and doesn't know what we're talking about, we're talking about how people are referred to. And this isn't something that was talked about in the 50s or 60s, right? 70s, 80s. This is something that's fairly contemporary. True?
0: Yes. Yes, it is. It's a cultural shift that we're experiencing.
1: Why is this coming up now instead of 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago?
0: It's just because that's how cultures change, and that uh, and they just evolve, and 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 it takes, it happens over time. And when people get real upset about this one, um, this particular iteration of a change, sometimes they don't understand how culture change works. So you can say, think about the clothes people wore in the fifties, and then in the sixties, and in the seventies, and those changes just happen gradually. And this one is just another part of those changes. I think that people would think the implications are more so than just changes in clothing, but but they happen gradually to all of a sudden it uh, is really prominent to a lot of people.
1: One of the things that I wanted to explore with you is why you think this has become such a hot topic. And frankly, I don't want to spend our entire time talking about this because I think you have an awful lot to offer to a divided nation beyond pronouns with regard to communication and all. But I wanted to start on this because it was the last thing that you and I talked about. So I wanted to start on this, but then I want to talk about some other things too. Why is this such a divisive issue? Because I think it is a divisive issue.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. And, and it's good to talk about this example in addition to what you said, because it's an example of how i approach communication and conflict in general. Um, it, it's div- Well, there's at least two reasons it's divisive. Uh, first, you have people like Matt Walsh and his team capitalizing and exploiting the very real uncertainty that people can feel and face when there is a culture change like this. For me, I think it makes total sense to have people be um, fearful around something like gender pronouns um, or personal pronouns and uh, to feel anxiety uh, when they learn about that uh, because it can question their fundamental core beliefs that they've grown up with, that might be a part of their community, their religious faith, um, that's what they've learned from their parents. And it's not, um, in some ways it can be a luxury to have the time to explore all these differences and really to do that kind of educating. Um, and if it doesn't happen in your community, then you're just not exposed to it. So, so when I say that, I I feel like it makes sense that people would have uncertainty around it.
1: But you're saying, and we referred to Matt Walsh and we'll talk about him and his positions in a minute, because I think they're examples of some of the other side position wise, but you say exploit uncertainty. What, What do you mean by that?
0: So, um, so, so where I teach at Kent State, there's a there's a we're part of one of the most rural counties in Ohio, actually, but it bumps up against you know more populated um, cities, and so there's a lot of different kinds of students, and I'm saying that for a reason. Uh, the students that are from the more rural areas, nobody's ever asked them what they think about personal pronouns. They literally never heard of it, uh, and they don't talk about it, and so. When you're being exposed to these ideas for the first time it can if you've grown up maybe as part of a community where there's only men and women and it's all uh, the sort of traditional narrative of how the world works when all of a sudden there's this cultural shift happening that can threaten the way that you have grown up and it can create anxiety and so my approach is to help people to understand that and work through that and it's totally fair to have that anxiety In my view, people exploit it by uh, rather than trying to educate or or try to help that individual understand why, where their anxiety is coming from and how they can work through it. And it's totally fair to have it. They uh, are like, yeah, we're going to amplify those fears and just uh, really exacerbate this divide and exploit it for our own gain.
1: Let me say something though. I kind of made a list of just a few. I wrote them down. Just recently, I've done a lot of shows about social issues. Most of these have aired. I've done shows about violence and the police, about no bail legislation, failed prosecution, shoplifting, failure to prosecute shoplifting, the great resignation. 34 million people resigning between the first of the year and October of last year. Things like implied bias, white privilege, legalization of marijuana, homelessness, how to deal with that, defunding the police, critical race theory, teaching it or not teaching it in the schools, pronouns, transgender individuals and how they deal with it family-wise, community-wise, otherwise. I get feedback. We have millions of viewers, you know, live and then in reruns, and we're on Paramount Plus and Pluto and YouTube and all these different things. We're in multiple foreign countries, 220 markets in America, lots of exposure. And one of the things I hear a lot is, why did you let the other side come on and say the things they said? I'll hear from people that are pro one side. I'll hear from a lot of them, hey, thank you so much for letting us come on the platform and talk about what we want to talk about. And then I'll hear from others that say, why did you let those people come on and talk about the other position? And then the other side will come on and say the same thing. Thanks for letting us come on. They don't have others say, why did you let those people come on and say those things? Why did you let them do that? Why did you let them do it? And I'm like, nobody wants to let anybody else speak. And I'm astounded that I hear so many people say, if you don't agree with me, if you don't think like I do, if you say things that don't dovetail with my thinking, I am going to criticize you, hate you, attack you, because you don't think like I do, speak like I do, and tell me what I want to hear. What the hell is going on?
0: I agree with you in that reaction Um, and it's really frustrating to me too, especially around the, you know, the, the pronoun episode and that react the reaction that people had to that. So you, you laying out uh, the, how vast your audience is means you are the perfect platform to present multiple viewpoints uh, in my view, because you're reaching the most people. Um, And, you, the way we need to hear both of the, or both many different sides of an issue so that people can make a decision for themselves. And when we shut down, people from or from hearing other kinds of perspectives. It's just productive to me and it's really boring. And uh, it's usually motivated by uh, the need for validation from one side that's not uh, genuine in my view. I mean, I could go on and on about this. Uh, especially with regard to our episode. But um, I don't agree. I mean, I think that providing that platform is a good thing. Some on, that, on your show, I wonder if maybe I didn't do my job well enough because they think that he won. And I was like, hmm, I didn't think that.
1: Well, I'm not so sure that's true. It's just who's most vocal after the fact. And I think some people are organized and they get out there and push the rhetoric forward and then The other side might not be at a given time, and I'm not going to allow hate speech. I'm one of those people that believes that white privilege exists, and I've said so because I can go to a store and walk through and not be followed. I can drive a nice car through a neighborhood and not be pulled over and say, where the hell did you get this car? And I've said that. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, come on. It's just a fact. And I had to shut my message boards down to protect my viewers from the hate speech from a small group of people that were coming on saying such vile things about the fact that I said I thought white privilege exists. It doesn't mean that a white person is doing anything wrong, but that does exist. Certainly in some areas it exists. It's worse in some areas than others, but it exists. I think it's not as bad with me as it is with most people because people are used to me telling both sides or allowing both sides to speak if somebody has a good faith argument i'm going to let them make it and let people make up their own minds
0: you had other uh people that could that i thought spoke really well like addison and ethan they they were able to advocate um and then having someone like me on uh so at least i'm more of an advocate and not part of the community to push back on him like I think that is definitely the right approach, because if we don't give and that I think I saw somewhere that there was the perception that you gave Matt Walsh a platform, and I don't I didn't think that at all a platform would have been you and him one on one or him just letting to run wild and and say all the things that he wants to say and that's not what happened. So now what he did do afterwards is somehow get a lot of footage and, and that show was interrupted by the presidential address. So I didn't even see it for a couple of days. And, um, uh, wouldn't, you know, it, I know that was great. Only the president could interrupt me. I loved it. Uh, um, we made a lot of jokes about it.
1: People come from their own point of view, of course. And, you know, I was raised in the South my grandparents on my mother's side had second and third degree educations from a 1,500 person small town in Texas, not educated, very restricted in their views of things. And I spent every summer with them working in a warehouse. And my father was the first one in the family to ever go to college. I was the second. So you get a very restricted view of the world until yeah. you. I liked reading, so I expanded it that way. But a lot of people grow up with a very limited view of the world and think, well, there's just this and nothing else. And so it's hard for them to consider alternatives. And I think that's why it's important to present two sides of an issue or three sides or four sides or five sides. Yeah. And. I believe very much in looking at empirical data, and I'm a Christian, and I have been since I was 12 or 13, and the fact that I look at science probably causes some of the religious community to look at me funny, but still I consider myself a Christian. It doesn't mean I can't look at science. I just think there's more than one way to skin a cat. I've long believed that you don't have to love everything about someone to love that person. They can have a certain belief or a certain behavior that I don't like, but I can still love them, and we seem to have gotten away from that.
0: And and I I completely agree with you because we're all more complex than than black and white like uh, individuals and how we are. Um often when somebody will be threatened by something, so like when you just said I can I uh I cannot like what somebody does or whatever, but I can still love that person or not love a part of them, depending on what that part is. Uh, like if, yeah, if student, they kill
1: children or something, I'm right, not going to go have lunch with. We're
0: them. We're probably going to agree on that one. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm not, I'm not really targeting saying this to asking this of you, but it reminded me of a, of students, you know, saying, "Well, I don't know if, how I feel about somebody doing this," and it's you know not totally awful. Uh, I try to ask them why. Why does that bother you? But you have to dig real deep and it requires a great deal of self-reflection. And often the reason that it bothers you isn't what you might think on the surface. And if you can dig deep, then you can realize that it's not that big of a deal at all and it's not a threat to you. And so when I do that with students or anybody that I'm talking with, I don't take it, I take it very seriously because there's a risk when you ask yourself those sorts of questions um, and you have to make yourself really vulnerable. but often things aren't as scary as they seem, or things. Yeah, well, we now might you're not- getting
1: in my lane and you're doing a really good job of it because things don't often occur for the apparent reasons. There's usually something more to it, and that's exactly right. I'm glad that you're characterizing it that way because that's exactly right. And if you look beyond it, you can usually find out what's really going on. And if they can deal with that, then they can be more open to the actual issue. You know, people respond to issues, not topics. And if you can deal with the issue, then the topic's not so scary.
0: Yeah. And it's not, I mean, and with, for me, I meet, I meet people where they're at. I don't expect someone to take a a gender class with me and become a women's studies major after like a semester. And I don't want them to do that you know, I kind of figure out where they're at in the beginning. And for a lot of the students, if they can just come to terms with the idea that gender is socially constructed, that's not even political. There's nothing about that. It's just, if they can get that far, that's great. Um, And it's just those little incremental changes and um, just to kind of have more of an open mind.
1: And that's what I'm trying to get people to do. I mean, if somebody tells me, look, I I think they are, Men and women, there have been for thousands of years, and that's the way I think about it. It's biologically defined, and that's how they want to believe, and that's their religious belief, and they define it at that level. I don't have to turn my back on that person. If that's the level at which they want to define that, and that's okay, I can respect their right to embrace that. And if the person standing next to them says, well, but now wait a minute there's a difference between biological sex and gender, then that doesn't mean that I can't have a dialogue with both of those people. And that's what's frustrating when people say, you can't have both of those people talking.
0: They need to. And you did a good thing by, I didn't really know who Matt Walsh was uh, that well before I went on the show, but I'm real glad that I did that and that you had him on because people need to hear the, what he is talking about. Now, my dilemma, and I've been thinking about this since the show, and I don't know that I'll have a concrete answer for you yet, but um, it's been on my mind, is how I think it's important to have him on, and um, I wish, uh, he does. they don't play fair. He's not playing fair. He's yelling, and, and uh, so I've been trying, sorting through the dilemma of how to get people to actually listen to the words he's saying. And with me, I don't care if, you, if you're if you conservative thinking or you don't like personal pronouns. It's not the outcome. It's how he got to the, that outcome because his argument made no sense. And it was exploiting fear and it was a lot of generalizations. Um, and that's why I feel like you needed to have him on. So because I want people to hear that. And I don't know that that happened.
1: I take these things very seriously, as you can oh. tell, because we've been. Yeah, yeah, yeah going back and forth about it. I will say this. I don't know Matt Walsh well, but I can tell you, I believe he is absolutely sincere in his beliefs. I think he believes that there are men and women and that to come up with iterations otherwise is disingenuous. I don't think he's just trying to stir up trouble. I think he believes it. I think he's committed to it. And I think he's Whether you like the way he makes his argument or not, I think he is sincere about what he believes.
0: No, that's a fair statement.
1: Yeah, and I think he's sincere about that, and he is a good presenter. You know, one of the things that I think you and I hold in common is that language is very powerful. And I say to people all the time, words matter. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the words that we use to ourselves matter. The words we use with other people matter, and I tell people, like for example, I I have people sometimes that go, just even in common, everyday interactions. You know, how was your day? Oh, it was horrible. Oh, uh, you know what happened? Oh, it was just terrible. Well, you know what? No, it wasn't. You know, go to the children's burn unit at Parkland in Dallas that's horrible. The fact that they got your latte mixed up and you got stuck in traffic, that's inconvenient. That's not horrible. But when you tell yourself it's horrible, there's a physiological correlate for every thought that you have. And when you give all this catastrophic language to yourself, your body's going to respond to it. This is your field. And I I wish you would talk about that some, because I think it's so important for people to understand that they program themselves mentally, physically, physiologically with the words they use.
0: Well, this is, well, so, you know, that part is a little bit out of my research area, but this is where we're complimentary because I, because what I would, of course, I agree with what you're saying about how the words we use can have this uh, physiological effect on us. So my, then my contribution to that would, and from my field is that uh, meanings are in people, not in words. So we are interpretive. So so when you're saying like your example about horrible, right? And what is actually horrible and how that might impact you. The additional layer to that is that person who thinks a latte or a mistaken latte is horrible has a meaning for that word. And then, and you have clearly have a different meaning for that word. And so just saying the word horrible doesn't mean you are on the same page.
1: And. I think the thing that we don't understand sometimes is the words we say, you're right, they have a meaning to us, and then they have a meaning to somebody else. And I think that's where empathy comes in and the ability to read the room and read your audience and understand the impact you're having on the people you're talking to and how what you're saying is playing with them, whether it's in a couple or it's with your children, it's teachers with their students you got to read the room. You got to understand the impact you're having on the people you're talking to.
0: Right. Yeah. Just whatever, just because you intend something doesn't mean that that impact will be what you intended. And you, and there's a degree of accountability that we have to have to your point around what that, um, impact might be. That's for me. I just approach things where I know I'm going to screw up sometimes, and I'm not afraid of that, and I, I like to be made fun of if that happens. And I, and I don't come from a place where I'm trying to cause harm. And I assume those same things in other people. And it just kind of lets all that yelling and, and getting all fired up. Like it doesn't impact me and it doesn't, it doesn't help ordinary people trying to figure out some of these issues.
1: Let me ask you this. You know, I spent a lot of my professional career in the litigation arena I had a trial science firm. We did jury trials. And so communications were very, very important, both verbally and non-verbally, what we were trying to create in terms of perception to the jury. And we did witness preparation, and we prepared them sometimes for media training and always for jury presentation and we always said we we said what do you mean you're preparing witnesses and we said we're teaching them to tell the truth effectively because there's a big difference between telling the truth and telling the truth effectively and to do that you have to know your audience and to know your audience, you have to know you know who your jurors are. Are these feeling people are these cerebral people? Are these skeptical people? are they I mean who are you talking to? And I'm really wondering, we have such divisiveness in the country right now, and you know, I'm on the air every day. I watch our politicians that are in front of the country every day. I watch the two sides. I watch Fox News and CNN. I watch these different information providers, and it doesn't seem like anybody is doing anything except preaching to the choir. It's like Fox is talking to their own people, CNN's talking to their own people, nobody's trying to persuade anyone that doesn't already like think like they are. And so the divide's getting bigger and bigger. What can we do and what can I do? What can all of us do to try to start getting this communication back open again?
0: Um, So I have a few ideas that I don't think these are the only, only ways to do it, but you know, when, so watching the those media outlets like Fox and CNN, whatever. I mean, it's a transmission view of communication. They're delivering it, you know, to the audience. You know, we're watching it on TV. That's out of my realm of research. Um, but there's not there's no no interaction. You you you're a platform like your show does build in more dialogue um, with differences with different ways of thinking. Um, so it's a, that is a little bit different but you still have the audience, you know, just consuming it. And that's fine. Um, So as far as the, the, the media mediated piece, having something like what you're doing or these shows that have different viewpoints. And that's why I think it was good to bring on Matt Walsh and I don't think there should be this outcry against it. Um, And then on an interpersonal level, or, you know, for me, it's in the classroom. It's a, getting people to have conversations around difficult issues, but but before they can even do that, getting comfortable with what they think for themselves. So a lot of times people aren't given enough opportunities to, you're asked where you stand on something, but you're not taught the ways um, or asked how you got to that point or why and taught how to build that sort of argument. Um, and I don't mean like an advanced you know, academic sort of argument. I mean, just like a basic understanding why you feel that way. Um, And I think I said that to somebody I was talking to for the show that um, when I'm teaching, I don't want the students hardly ever know what I think or where I stand on something. They can judge me, whatever, based on appearance. I don't care. I don't want them to think like me. I don't want them to think like their pastor, their friends, their partner, their parents, or like any uh, political leader that they follow. I want them to think for themselves. And then, if it they happen to align still with their parents, great. But know how you got there, and there's not enough of that happening. Um, or I think that's one way to uh, mitigate some of this divide.
1: Is there a point in terms of and with you? It's different because you've got at least young adults. Is there a point? educationally, where there should be boundaries in terms of what is being taught in the schools versus what should be taught by parents. You know, we've got this debate about, should they be teaching critical race theory in schools? And of course, they're not teaching critical I race know, theory in that's school. So that's just such a misnomer. They're I not know. teaching critical race theory in school. But should they be teaching... What they are teaching and calling critical race theory in school, where do you decide as an educator what's the job of the educator and what's the job of the parents? How do you draw those lines
0: so um i I can answer this as an educator and as a parent, but but they're, those two identities uh they're yeah they're really integrated for me anyways uh It's a privilege to rely on parents to be teaching everything, so teaching things around gender, or teaching things around sex education, or teaching um, any of these sorts of issues. That's those are that's a privilege, and not all parents can do that. Um, have time to do it, or have interest in do it, and then in doing it. And then, of course, we have the segment of parents that don't want to do that. Um, teach. I. I also, and I'm, I am not trying to be naive. I come from the the starting point that I think schools. Are genuinely trying to do a good service, um, and you know if your school is doing something so egregious you can't tolerate it, then go somewhere else. But I just I don't assume that. Uh, so therefore, if a, if the school is presenting information that maybe makes me uncomfortable or I'm a little bit uncertain, that's an opportunity to talk to my children about that because they're going to be exposed to different way of thinking. So if we start, if we eliminate that exposure. You know, in schools, it's like, no wonder we get to where we are now as adults, where people can't talk about uh, different sides of an issue or multiple sides of an issue or take on a different perspective. Uh, the one thing that but, uh, the example, of course, that I have is from your show, uh, the parents that were upset about personal pronouns and things happening in the school system, that's a—that's fair for them to feel that way. Uh, I, you know, and I don't have that same fear as a parent, but I don't, I think I, I like the idea that schools are teaching more progress, more things like that, but they have to educate the parents too on what they're teaching.
1: Well, you know, it affected a governor's race. One candidate taking the position that it's not the parents' business what's being taught in the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you believe that?
0: no. But I'm not I mean, of course, it is their business. Uh, but it's not so extreme. I, I mean, I don't know, I think schools, we want parents aren't smart in everything. I mean, I Yeah, I think I know everything about the world. Oh, great. No. Yeah, and I want my kids to be exposed to different ideas. And I create an environment at home where they feel comfortable talking to me about anything. And, uh, and then that's how we can sort of cultivate, Uh, not being so uncomfortable with talking about things that maybe are different than how we think.
1: I think the question is, should social issues be broached in school? Mm -hmm. Should that communication be coming from, from teachers? And if so, how are they prepared to present that? Or are they presenting their own values and beliefs? Or has this been vetted in some way? Is it part of the curriculum? Or is it just their personal beliefs that they're setting forth and have the parents signed off on that? Or is this something that should be completely with the parents and the teacher should be teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, biology, da 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 And I think mm. that's what a lot of people are really trying to decide. And if so, is there some kind of universality of what's being taught so the parents know if they need to finish the story give a counterbalancing argument put it in context but if they don't know what it is then how can they do that
0: so you're uh i think the parents are a bit fearful and it's um I don't agree with that sort of extreme fear where you'd want to pull out information um, and also from the school and reading and writing all of those subjects. They're not all. Uh, there's already choices that teachers are making about things that they include. Um, for me, I would want to know. I don't think most uh, schools, this is a little bit out of my area as far as if we're talking about like not at the university level, but uh you can't just walk into a classroom as a teacher and just start teaching whatever you want uh, and, and your opinion. The curriculums are constrained in many different ways and uh, teachers are usually overworked and underpaid and they don't have time to have some kind of a political agenda. So I don't assume that there's some kind of an ulterior motive with, uh, with educators um, that I think some parents might, might start to assume. Um, but I, but really, I just it does go back to what you were saying before about how can we make it so we don't have this uh, this uh, divide where people aren't willing to talk about other things um, or things that are different. If we if we go back to the schools and you have parents uh, protesting at school boards and being so threatened by any piece of information um, that doesn't that, and half the time I don't even think they realize what the information is that's being shared, but that. That response then is setting an example for their children, and uh, that it's no surprise that we, like I said before, that here we are today.
1: The key to me seems to be transparency, and this I'm coming full circle with this, with the question being, should teachers, and if so, what is the age-appropriate level at which teachers should be talking about pronouns? In school, introducing gender as a concept in the schools, and if so, first should they be, and at what age, and should there be transparency with the parents about what they're going to do before they do it?
0: I mean, i, I have a uh, I have a extreme viewpoint about this. I sound extreme, but you could you could teach about this stuff from the beginning. You can start it in preschool. My caveat is it's always age appropriate. Um, so uh, I, I teach a sex class. Uh, it's called Let's Talk About Sex. It's sex and communication. And so this example I think uh, makes is easier to get across this age appropriate idea. Uh, we teach consent in, in preschool and consent in preschool is don't touch, you know, Johnny without asking. Or don't just go up and hug, you know Ava. You need to ask first. It's so it's consent in a totally different way that we that I would teach it to college students, right? And there's a way to do that with gender um, and to break it down. Uh, Individual kids. Well, so you know I'm communication, and this is more your area. So I'm going to say something. You tell me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is gender constancy, how we identify as a as a boy or a girl, is around three, is when we're three years old. So um, it's not the this, this stuff is usually not very surprising to the kids. It's the parents that are wigging out. Um, the kids are usually pretty comfortable with it. Um, but again, when I say that, it's not anything goes, it's age appropriate, it's informed by research. And yes, sharing with the parents, of course. But parents, well, I don't know, as a parent, I like to know all sorts of things that they're being taught in the classroom said about me uh spying on them or trying to double check it's like I genuinely wow that's really cool I'm interested in knowing more about that
1: so you do think that it's appropriate for teachers to be introducing the concept of the difference between sex and gender
0: <laughs> uh yeah I do I do yes
1: and at what age
0: I think there's age appropriate ways to do it uh, from preschool beyond. That doesn't mean in preschool it's, this is sex and this is gender. You wouldn't present it that way. The sex part is learning about your body in a way that makes sense in a preschool classroom. I'm not like advocating for something crazy. Um, And then gender is like teaching about uh, things that that, uh, boys can go play with the dollhouses and it doesn't have to be the girl's corner. And it, you know things like that, and that it's sometimes it's not explicitly teaching about it in the classroom in that way. It's changing how the classrooms are organized. So rather than saying boys line up over here and girls line up over here, if there's no reason to have them separate, if it's just to like go outside or something, why do it that way? Think of other ways that we can uh, uh, demarcate categories in the classroom and not base those only on sex. So. Those are some examples. I'm not a preschool teacher, but I am saying that you can start doing that, you know, at that age level, but it has to be age appropriate.
1: And at what point would you say to start talking about pronouns?
0: I don't know that I have an, an exact age age for that, because you mean in a public institution, right? Not in the yes, family. Uh-huh. Yeah. In classroom. There are definitely a number of factors that would go into that, but I don't... Uh, I think that you can do it in elementary school, but you have to have the infrastructure in place where the where that the values in that community are interested in, in in moving that way. Because you and I both know that all over just the United States, there's so much variation in values and and the degree to which different communities would, would be ready for something like that. And so I would I would expect communities to honor some of that and to evolve in a way that you know makes sense with that community. Uh, But I, but I think there should be uh, education from the school uh, with the parents about doing that um, because it's not really that threatening in the end, but when we present it in a way uh, you can present it in a way where it can be very threatening, but it's not, I don't think that it is in the end.
1: You know, I asked you some things before where you said, well, I have some input to this, but it's not in my area of research. I assume what I'm asking you now is in your area of research. So are you saying that you would advocate to meet with the parents or during parent conference or parent teacher day that you talk about the fact that we're proposing to start doing this with the children so they don't come home and surprise yes. the parents that all of a sudden we're talking about this in class?
0: Yes. Yeah. And when I say that's it's not beyond my area of research. That's because I'm an academic. You know, we like to only talk about things we're with experts on.
1: Right. And I do want to know the research because I think research should inform practice and practice should inform research. And there are a lot of teachers listening to what we're talking about right now.
0: I do think that uh, for these communities where there is this outrage about pronouns and uh, coming into the school system uh, or, or being introduced into the classroom, um, there is... I think that uh, teachers or schools could do more maybe than to educate the parents um, about that that's going to be happening. And and this is what it means and, and try to mitigate some of those fears. I'm not trying to give teachers more work. I know they have a, enough to do as it is, but I, I think that there isn't, there, possibly there's not enough um, education of the parents around some of this. Again, like I said, the kids don't, often they don't really care. They're too busy doing other things and they're just like, oh, okay, cool. But the parents are more afraid.
1: How many school children do we have in America right now? Oh, I don't know. Is it like 50 million, 55? (laughs) Maybe. What percentage of school children are non-binary?
0: Um, I, I don't I don't know the exact percentage, uh, but it's not as much as uh, as people might think.
1: I mean, are we bending a curriculum? Uh, and is there a more effective way to do that?
0: Okay, I think it's closer to 10%, but that's still not a lot. And I understand what you're saying, changing the curriculum. Well, I'm not saying thing.
1: I'm asking, I, I'm, I don't
0: think that change is that big of a deal. And I think this is, go. this goes back to people. Um, uh, one, I want to know why people are so fearful of that change and why it's not that big of a deal to, to introduce pronouns. It, and I, when I say that, I don't mean it dismissively. I think that, um, That we think there's more implications for it, more negative implications, some people, than there actually are, when the purpose is to just allow individuals to self identify in a way that makes sense to them. And we don't need to be threatened by that.
1: I hear exactly what you're saying. And I think, and what I'm reading from in asking these questions are passing along questions that I've had passed on to me from people that have written in after the show, people that have written to me directly. And so I'm asking questions that have been asked of me. And if it was just the pronouns, I think it would be less threatening. But then if it gets to changing bathrooms, changing participation in sports, going on You know, we've been watching Leah Thomas, University of Pennsylvania. Do you think she should be able to compete the way she has been?
0: Yes. I I mean, I do. I do think so. But I, I, yes, I'm okay with the quality in that that way. And uh, and I'm, but I'm not, I can see how sports fans would get real upset about that, I guess, and the competitive part of it. But I don't. Um, I don't, I don't have a problem with that at all.
1: Tell me why not? How do you square that in your mind?
0: Well, the, the regular old Susie squares it in her mind because it's, I'm so tired half the time doing laundry and trying to get my kids ready and teach my classes. I don't have time to take a stand on that sort of thing. And that, and I'm not minimizing people that do. I say that because that's how the vast majority of people are around these issues. It's this, but there's a lot of people that get very loud about it. Um, and I, and I don't mean to minimize their voices either. Uh, I think it goes back to like with the sports example, people, uh, I think there's this assumption that all of a sudden an individual is like, I don't feel like being a woman anymore. I'm going to be a man. And they just like become one and it's very arbitrary and that's not how it works. Um, it involves a, a great deal of struggle and it's not just a choice that somebody makes out of the blue. and I don't and, and we might think of it as them making a choice, but it's not really a choice. It's a uh, because they never felt the the they never felt the, how they wanted to be from the beginning. Um, and then there's all these different steps that you have to realize. and, uh, and I think knowing that I know a lot of that background or, or not, you know not all the details, but I'm aware that it happens. Um, And I don't take that uh, any sort of a transition like that as an arbitrary choice means that makes it a lot easier for me to be okay with somebody competing in sports, because it's not like, Oh, I'm going to become this so I can go win this competition. It's not like that's how it works.
1: But is it fair that Leah has gone through hormone therapy and, testosterone treatment for it, I think it's a minimum of a year where testosterone has to be depleted, correct?
0: I think I don't know the exact uh, amount of time, but yeah, there is. And I I I
1: don't know the process either, but I know that, like you say, you just can't say, okay, today I'm going to be. Yes, it's a
0: very long process. Yeah.
1: Today I'm going to be a woman, dive in the pool and swim off. You have to go through a whole process, but that doesn't change the wingspan. Uh, which is very important in swimming and the leverage and all of that. And so she gets in and wins a race by, what, 20 or 30 seconds or something like that, which is like a country mile Mm -hmm. and somebody that has worked and trained for three or four years. And then, you know, here comes this individual that just smokes the whole field and they say, well, what the hell? Why have I worked for two or three years where somebody that anatomically is completely different and now I get pushed off the podium and I get pushed off maybe opportunity to go to nationals or the Olympics or whatever and that doesn't seem fair. And that's what I mean when I say, how does that seem okay to you?
0: For me to even kind of entertain that question, not from you, like what, because I've gotten questions like that too. So, um, that that isn't what I'm what I'm trying to do uh, with these issues. I feel like a- answering that question. That person is motivated th- in asking that question because they feel like there's something unfair about it.
1: They and definitely they, feel like there's something right, unfair about it.
0: They feel like there's something. There's inequalities that are perpetuated when uh, we allow transgender individuals, um, to exist. It's, and they're using the sports context to, uh, which is an extreme one. And I just, and I don't know enough about that particular situation, but they that the p- person that wrote that is taking this extreme example, um, to say, well, you know, if you do this, then you're going to get that. So a person, I don't, I don't think that person does not that they don't deserve an answer, but that that's not the right question to be asking if they genuinely wanted to understand.
1: Well, I think it's a legitimate question, though, and I think it's one that's going to come up frequently. And I, I don't think it's dismissive of the whole arena. I think there are going to have to be limitations and allowances where it's okay in one arena but not in another.
0: No, that, that's a fair, yeah, yeah.
1: And that's not to say that Leah didn't have skills before cuz you can throw me in the pool and it wouldn't matter <laughs> what I did I wouldn't yeah. be able to outswim those girls on that team no matter what cuz you you got to have some skills but Right. I, I think there are anatomical differences that hormone therapy doesn't shorten your arms.
0: Yeah, no, that's a fair point and I didn't mean to sound I mean I'm glad you said that to me just now because I don't want to come across as uh, naive and like, Oh, why does anyone care about this? And there's no implications. I'm not, I get that. I understand. I
1: still want you saying that's not the right question to be asking just because you don't have an answer. They have the right to ask the question.
0: Yes, there are definitely contexts where there's going to have to be some very difficult decisions that have to be made. And sports is one of those contexts. And I really don't, uh, know, And I don't envy the people that have to make those decisions. And that's what I will say about that. I'm always a bit skeptical uh, when somebody asks a question like that, if it's in response to the episode that I did with you. And the reason I would be skeptical is because I just don't know what their um, motivation is, if they really want to understand or if they're really worried about the legality in sports. Um, and that's close to home for them or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of athletes have really focused on that. I don't think it's anything to do with our episode because I've seen that question a lot in the media before our episode and after. I'd like to talk about one other topic before we end because it's near and dear to my heart, and that is the mental health issues issues in the trans community, and one of the things that I want to differentiate is we do know that there is a higher incidence of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and suicide in that particular community. The question is, is it because of a mental-emotional maladjustment associated with the rejection that's associated with what they're experiencing from family and friends, or is it associated with what they're experiencing, independent of the rejection? And I think you can articulate that it's the rejection and I'd like to clarify that some so people have some clarity about that. Can you speak to that?
0: Yes. So so the, the higher rates of depression and uh and and anxiety and then suicide rates uh is is growing uh, is most likely growing up in a culture where they don't they can't feel like they fit in and they don't have access to um, resources that everyone else would have, or even the language to talk about how they're feeling Um, and uh, and feeling potentially this disconnect between maybe what their body looks like or how they are biologically and then how they feel internally. And I mean, I guess if you wanted to pull it full circle, knowing that that is the that is one of the rationales for uh, talking more about these issues at a younger age in an age appropriate way, so it's not so foreign um, and it's not so isolating for individuals that it can lead to depression and and even worse.
1: Well, a couple of major statistics, and these may be obsolete in one respect because I think the general population statistic is pre-pandemic. And I think the post-pandemic or during this pandemic, the rate is higher. But one statistic is 39% of the transgender people report serious psychological distress versus 5% of the US population. And I'm saying I think the 5% is higher now because of the pandemic. And I suspect the 39% is probably higher as well because of the pandemic, but probably the differential is pretty much the same. So the serious psychological distress is much higher among transgender people than the US population in general. And that's your experience and your familiarity with the research confirms that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And think about um so pronouns are a good example of something that we can easily advocate for. And, and guess what? It doesn't really cost any money to, uh, to change pronouns or to allow people to um, choose their own pronouns. But when we think about some of these statistics that you're saying now, you know, it's important to think about that uh, It's in most states, it's still legal to discriminate in housing and in um, employment and all other uh, parts of our lives based on gender identity. And so imagine the kinds of stress and and anxiety and depression that that can cause. Um, So it's not just I can't choose my pronouns. It's very real material world um, challenges.
1: Well, isn't it true that youth that are able to change their name or some type of gender marker on legal documents, for example, reported much lower rates of suicidal ideation and attempts? I mean, there was some pressure release associated with that?
0: Yeah, yeah, there is, because imagine you can just, it's things that we take for granted if you don't, if you, you know, if you are cisgender um, and you don't have to think about that additional stress, um, it's its not as noticeable to us or noticeable at all, but it can be just a a huge uh, sense of uh, the the pressure taken off to just be able to go about your day and have that part not be an issue. So, you know, you know, you have your name and you're not going to be going um, to a classroom and uh, the, on the roster, it doesn't say that you're the name that you go by. Right. And so then anytime somebody is meeting you, they are saying this name and you have to have this conversation where you're correcting them. That's exhausting, you know? And so those little changes can make it um, a now, lot that, less that stressful. That has to
1: be mentally, emotionally, Yeah, draining. Forty percent of transgender people noted they attempted suicide in their lifetime, which is nine times the attempted suicide rate in the U.S. And that transgender adolescents present four to six times higher levels of depression and three to four times higher levels of self-harm. So that is a staggering Mm -hmm. statistic
0: yeah no it's horrible and it's part of it is because we don't talk about these things as openly or we have um you know the issues around the uh, pronouns or parents not understanding what's going on and then not having that being part of a school system or structures where you can talk about that disconnect around gender you know with professionals or maybe these kids aren't even well versed enough in a lot of a lot of it to understand what's happening to them and a lot of these horrible statistics um just remind me of the need to emphasize that it's it's not on the individuals it's not on the transgender community or the queer community to take on this battle and to have to constantly explain themselves and to justify and do all of the educating it's on the rest of us so uh because you know, I'm not exhausted going through my day having to remind people who I am or how I identify. But so I have plenty of energy to speak up and help them out, um, you know, so that they don't have to do all of the work towards equality.
1: But well, one last statistic I wanted to ask you about, because I found this, I just thought it was a typo and I went back and checked it. And this was a study from 2019 by the Yale School of Public Health. And you probably know the study that 83 percent of those who identify as lesbian gay or bisexual keep their orientation hidden from all or most people in their lives is that true is it that high
0: I don't know if it's still that high um but it but it so yeah it is it is high but the one the one thing I would want to say around that is that you don't just hide um, your sexual orientation that one time. And, and maybe you've heard the idea that when you come out, uh, you don't just come out one time. Um, it's any interaction that you're having. So you decide if you're going to disclose to your family or to your friends or to your workplace, but it's a choice every day. Um, it can be a choice every day about whether or not you are going to to choose to disclose that part of your identity. Um And so, then you know. On the flip side, there's many choice. There's many times where you choose to not to not share anything and to keep that inside.
1: Yeah. So you have to do it in this setting and in that context and this relationship and then to to, to do it over and over.
0: Where is it? If you identify as heterosexual, you don't ever think about it. Yeah. Usually, yeah.
1: I hadn't thought about how many times you have to do that. Last question: Is gender? totally a social construct, or is there evidence of a biological component to that as well?
0: Well, of course, I'm not going to say an extreme answer to that, because I don't know. But there, because there is, there is some biology there. But so the, so sex, right, male, female, intersex, that's uh, your, you know, your chromosomes and the biology and the hormones and all of that. Um, And gender is socially constructed to a, to a certain extent uh but I would never say that biology has nothing to do with it I would never and I don't say that to my students
1: um well I would think it's got to be largely social right
0: i th- yes I think that it is and the reason but we have to include biology a lot of the uh, there's not enough research on biology in, in that area um and, it, and it's extremely difficult to to point you know, to connect the biological components to what's happening socially. Um, But it's social. Yes. Gender is socially constructed, how we uh, express what it means to be a man or express what we, what it means to be a woman. Um, Those come from, you know, where we were raised, uh, how we've interacted with our parents, our siblings, um, you know, religion and all that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. There aren't enough twin studies to get nature nurture completely. Right, nailed down. And when
0: anyone wants to, ask, so I I ask my students when I teach that class, and they and it's a trick a little bit, but uh, you know, is it are these things more due to nature or nurture, and uh, and they're exposed to a lot of different sorts of theories, and they're exposed to biological theories of gender um, from the textbook because that's not my area, so I can't go to I mean the science part of it, um, and then you know psychological theories, interpersonal theories, cultural theories of gender, and. It's a trick question asking them which is which, because the, the answer really is that all of these things contribute to gender um, and to some degree, but if we can emphasize the parts that are socially constructed that, that have more flexibility, uh, then we can make it, we can push back on a lot of those norms.
1: Well, I want to finish by saying that there are so many places, I, I was just staggered by the mental emotional impact of members of this community having to live with these pressures and there's support available the Trevor project i think is just wonderful which is an lgbtq plus organization that provides education support the national center for the transgender for transgender equality FLAG, an organization that provides support, education, and advocacy all over the United States and in Puerto Rico, the Trans Youth Family Allies, the Trans Latina Coalition, Gender Spectrum, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which is a website that provides a directory of health care providers and scholarship opportunities as well. And I'm going to have links to all of these uh, on our website and on drphil.com as well. Are there any others that you would add to that list? Um, Or is that a pretty good list?
0: It's a pretty comprehensive
1: list. Okay, good. And I went through it quickly, but as I say, it will be listed so people can find that. And please reach out for help if you're feeling the burden and the pressure. And I promise you, when you contact these organizations, they're not going to pressure you to do something you don't want to do. They're not going to pressure you to disclose things about yourself, to take steps you don't want to take. You can be anonymous. They're going to listen. They're going to provide support. So don't feel like you're taking that can't turn back step. They're going to listen, provide you support and help. So don't feel like you're okay, I'm burning the ships in the harbor when I contact this organization. That is not true. They're there to help you and not put pressure on you. So it's a place for help and support, not to put pressure on you in any way. So please, if you're feeling the pressure, by all means, reach out to these organizations. And if you are feeling pressure and you're having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, you know, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Again, they won't put pressure on you. They'll help you. They'll give you resources. They'll do anything they can to help you. It is not a good option. There's help available, and there is a solution. There is help. There are people who care. So don't give in to that thought or that temptation. I promise you, there's hope and a better day. So, if you're among that group that's feeling that pressure, uh, don't don't give into it. There is help out there. Agreed.
0: I definitely agree. And making that kind of a call can be very scary, but it's just a quick call, you know, and it's it's the right step to to get the and
1: help. And no pressure on you. It's a safe call. They're going to listen and and help you. It's a yeah. safe call. So make it. There's help available. So. Well, Dr. Dinbo, is there anything that we haven't talked about? This, I hope, will not be the last time we talk, but is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we should talk about before we say goodbye for today?
0: Um, No, I think that's good. That's a very good closing question. I tell all of my students to always ask that when they're doing interviews.
1: (laughs) Well, I'd be a good student then.
0: (laughs) No, I feel like this was good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was fun. I had a great time on the show, and this was really fun,
1: too. Well, me too, and I'm very proud that you came on. I hope you'll come on again.
0: Yeah, I totally will.
1: Well, thank you so much. These are issues that I talk about with some regularity because I really try to support this community in every way that I can. So, I think you have great insights and a very non-threatening way to present this to people, and I would love to have you on again.
0: Yeah. I would love to do it. Yes. And I'm glad you said the non-threatening part because I value that a great deal.
1: Okay. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Great job today, by the way. Great job.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for doing this.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.